0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with Nabil Hyatt of Spark Capital and Sarah Tavel of Benchmark. Sarah, Nabil, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, as always. Good
0: to be here. So we're here to talk about marketplaces. Why don't we start with a brief background on your personal history with marketplaces? Why are you so excited about marketplaces in 2019? And what, do you, what brings you on the podcast to talk about?
2: Background on marketplaces, I think Spark, my partner... Former partner Andrew Parker back in 2010 wrote a post called, uh, the unbundling of Craigslist, uh, which is now a kind of famous post where he, you know, outlined in that really prototypical early marketplace, uh, what was going to happen over the next three or four or five years and out of there in his little graph. Those early days, I think it was like Etsy and Airbnb, Indeed, Redfin, um, several benchmark companies and Spark companies on that list. Uh, five years later, uh, Another colleague of mine, David Haber, kind of updated that list and, and we just watched marketplaces since the very beginning of the firm. I think they've changed over time, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Uh but it's just been a long time love. Uh for me personally, I'm on the board at at Postmates, uh, Zoom Instawork, and as a firm, you know, in the kind of like more recent uh time period we've invested in companies like uh get your guide and, and Rover as well. So uh deep deep background in it um and and love the space. Awesome.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I've always been a student of network effects. And when I was, you know, at Bessemer, a lot of the network effects that we focused on and invested in as a firm were, were more on the UGC side, like the social networks, the things like the Yelps, the LinkedIn's, and then, and then eventually the Pinterest. And then when I joined Pinterest, like, and was there, And working on the product and the discovery experiences, just realized more and more that what Pinterest was was actually a marketplace. It's just that instead of a transaction that used dollars, it was you know having consumers find. Uh, content that they were looking for, uh, and then you know when I joined Greylock and then started to f- focus more and more on transactional businesses uh, and just consumer more broadly and just you know social was a hard place to continue to invest in and focus on and and you saw a lot of emerging trends happening on the transactional side. Just got more and more excited to think about how do you create. Great consumer transactional businesses, and and the kind of the union of those two things is you've got the the transactional business plus the network effect. That's where you land with a marketplace. And so when I joined Benchmark, you know obviously Benchmark has quite the the history uh, with marketplaces. You know eBay being really the first kind of consumer marketplace, uh, and one of the early investments that that Benchmark made. Not to mention you know Uber and Open Table, Zillow, a bunch of others. I started to really spend more and more time in marketplaces. Um, and so now, you know, I'm on the board of uh, two marketplace companies, one on the consumer side, one on the B2B side. That's not yet announced, but continue to just be a student because it is. These businesses are so difficult to build, yeah. so nuanced, but if you get them right, they're incredibly valuable.
0: Totally. Let's zoom out a little bit and talk about the evolution of, of, of marketplaces, uh, in the last decade or so. Andreessen Horowitz came out with this post, uh, sort of detailing the different eras. There was the unbundling Craigslist era, which you just alluded to, Nabil, to the Uber for X era, the managed marketplace era, then the, they predicted sort of the service, the services marketplace era. How do you sort of see the last decade of marketplaces as it's played out and has, as VCs, how you've seen it evolve?
2: i i uh, I read that post. Uh, I think it's good to try and contextualize everything that's happened. I think that might be a little bit too clean of a of a break line. I think the overall trend that's true though is that the first wave of marketplace businesses, if you think about the Grubhubs of the world uh, are and, and in fact o- open tables are are almost lead gen businesses very early on, and I think what you have seen is lean gen businesses make way to two-way marketplace businesses where now you're in the middle of the transaction from beginning to end and now kind of manage marketplaces. And and the trend overall is just getting closer to the transaction, getting closer to both sides of the customer and getting more and more full service. The benefit of that is obviously you have uh, more revenue flow coming to you. The negative is these are more and more, increasingly more, and more complicated businesses to run. And so you have to be really careful that you're getting involved in the in the right kind of business with the right kind of economics, and ultimately, obviously, like the right kind of net profit profiles.
1: Yeah, I mean, just to build on that, like one one thing I've been thinking about a lot is that you know it, it felt like the first wave mm-hmm. of a lot of startups that um that happened. It was it was um the why now was these kind of external factors. So it was the internet coming, you know. Uh, faster connectivity on a mobile phone and, and Wi-Fi. And then, of course, you know, the iPhone and, and mobile phones just generally. Uh, and now, like, you know, a lot of what us VCs try to do is we search for the next why nows, the next catalysts that create, you know, a real opportunity for dynamism in an industry, which creates change, which creates opportunity for a company to come in and disrupt it. And so much of what I, I feel like is happening right now is that the why now is, is really the founder. Um And the founder is kind of hitting, you know, coming to a, a market like to what Nabil said, one that probably has been overlooked, but because of their unique experience, you know, someone I think once described as like an earned secret, they have an ability to see a seam in a market that other people have been missing, because there hasn't yet been the founder who has that unique collection of experiences that lets them see that opportunity. And then there are some tailwinds behind them that like let them open up that market. But I think there's just a, a lot of examples. I mean, Hip Camp is in a company that I'm involved with and Alyssa, you know, what Hip Camp is, you could say like that could have been created over the last decade. Like why, why now? And it's because there wasn't a founder like Alyssa. Who started in the space, had a particular perspective on how to, you know, what was needed in the market, create something and then be able to ride what really is a, a wind in her sails, which is just, you know, a secular trend towards people wanting to get out of their urban lives and connect with yeah. nature. And so I think that's why a lot of what you're seeing is people getting into what can feel like grungier and grungier verticals, right. but that are real opportunities. It's just we haven't had a founder find them yet. Yeah.
0: Does that sort of uh, represent sort of a shift from horizontal to more vertical marketplaces?
1: I definitely, I, I think we're seeing a lot of that. I also think, you know, I, I don't know about you, Nabil, but I see a lot of um, consumer to B2B marketplaces. Hmm. So yeah, I mean, like one of the things that I know I've been spending a lot of time looking at, and, and I as I alluded to, I'm on a board of a company that's that's building a B2B marketplace. Like you just see more and more founders that are uncovering opportunities in a B2B context to create a marketplace. And so, you know, we're on the board, uh Bill uh led an investment in a company called Hacker One, which is like a marketplace for bug bounties. We've got Solve, uh Self Health, which is building a marketplace for convenient care, same day, like starting with urgent care as, as the seam. And then kind of more broadly, there's companies like, you know, Paro, which is building a marketplace for financialists, financial professionals, or you even have things happening in like ocean freight. So there's just, you know, more and more of these marketplaces are starting in places where they've just been really hard to penetrate.
0: Yeah, Why didn't Uber for X take
2: off? Like, perhaps people thought you had some... You yeah, about-
1: I mean... This is, uh, I, we looked at yeah. so
2: many Uber. I, mean, I don't know if you did, say like dozens and dozens and dozens yeah, yeah. of Uber for X deals for those, that 18 month, two year period.
1: So, so, like, my, my reflection on that was that, yeah, there was, there was a period of time where, yeah, it was, the thing that people wanted to build was the Uber for X. And, and the insight that people realized from Uber was that there was this remote control for our lives, which was our smartphones, our iPhones, our Androids. and And what Uber unlocked was this 10X experience where you could have a car come to you. That's so much better than what the alternative was, which was waiting on a, on a street corner, or waiting for a taxi. Um, but I think what people missed at the time was that it wasn't, what was magical about Uber was not just that it created 10x better product, but that they used technology to recast cost structures and provide that better product cheaper. Yeah. And I think what, what so many people got wrong during that Uber for blank, you know, yeah. stage was that they were just trying to do the 10x and they weren't Doing the hard work of doing the and for the and cheaper. And so it was, you know, just an extra cost. It was, you know, the Uber for parking, Uber for dry cleaning, Uber for lawn. Like there's just so many of these. And it's when you're creating a new cost, there's just a smaller and smaller segment of people who can actually afford that. And, and so it's, it's, um, the, it was very few companies that were actually successful. I think there's another era. thing, which
2: is just that y- in order for, it to be a positive network effect business at scale, you need frequency. You need really high frequency, and more importantly, you need variable frequency. If you want something on demand that you're willing to pay premium for, then one, in order for the network effects to work on both supply and demand side, it's something that I might use a couple times a day in its high end, which just dry cleaning I'm never going to use twice a day. And two, it can't be completely regular um, or else it might as well have a subscription to the product and not pay variable higher costs so if it's parking most of my parking happens when i go to work every single day what did and you so, say
1: yeah I mean, and so why true.
2: do i need it to be on demand if i have it be on demand how often do i need it to be once a month once a week but maybe i take four weeks off and so i think there's a reason why food and humans uh are the two things that that have risen to the top and it's because it's the two things that have those that that real trait i can order it very very frequently uh and i have like real variability
1: i was parking has a lot of those traits i mean like if you think you you own a car and so you're going back and forth like to work to wherever you're going like there's the people who want to do that with their car and there's the people who want to do that with an uber just the difference is is like the cost of providing that service is you're just never going to be able to do it cheaper than what it would cost without like the intermediary. And I so think that, that's, yeah. Fair. And, so and the particular just, thing
2: in parking that's super weird is that it is in direct conflict yeah. with the Uber rise. Right. Right. And so it was
1: a bad time to be yeah. doing that company for sure. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, um, you talked about frequencies. Say more, uh, guys, about what you, uh, what makes great marketplace, what, 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 great marketplace business. What are the KPIs that you evaluate or when you sort of, you know, evaluate marketplaces, what's important to have and what are sort of negative things to have that, hey, this, this may, Look good, but it's not sustainable, or or we're you know we just want Can to I
2: echo it. something that Sarah just said, which is that I think. We often marketplaces in general. The reason, especially as investors and founders, we're attracted to it is because a lot of the time, what you're doing to that in particular market is removing the middleman yeah. or removing the rent seeker from the market and saying there's these set of people that really are adding value. And if I can if I can remove and automate a lot of that process, uh, I will accrue benefit to both sides of that market. So those people should take the profit, not the middle person. And I think that's great. But I think if it's just that, the question is. How is the product actually experience actually better? And I think you only get long-term, uh, innovation and a long-term sustaining business if you've actually made that product five or 10x better in the process of introducing, uh, that removing the middle. Yes.
1: Yes. I agree with that. So like in terms of like look for, I find myself always trying to really understand what the red hot center is of, of a marketplace. And, you know, I think one of the things that I see a lot of entrepreneurs make the mistake of is confusing which race they're in. Mm. And there's kind of two races that you can run. One race, and I think it's a race that has been rewarded by the market, uh, incorrectly so, is the race to growth. Mm. Um, but the real race that a marketplace is running is not how quickly you can grow, but it's how quickly you can build liquidity. Mm. And what that means is getting to a red-hot center and just getting something really freaking right. Yeah. And so what I find myself asking about a lot is describe to me, like, you know, who is the person that's transacting right now that's getting the most value out of your, out of your marketplace right now and really trying to understand what that looks like, what that transaction looks like, how the value is on both sides, where the marketplace is needing to step in to maybe kind of like prop it up a little bit in the beginning, whether that's trust or economics. You know, there's all types of not scalable things that marketplaces have to do in the beginning to get that flywheel starting to spin. Um, and so it's really just like understanding that red hot center, understanding how the entrepreneur thinks about building the system that supports and then expands that red hot center, uh, and and being less oriented towards the kind of bigger picture numbers. Mm.
0: So how did you get the conviction on, on HipCamp? I'm curious because it doesn't seem like, you know, Uber is the thing that, hey, you use multiple times a day or everyone uses it. HipCamp, you know, how often are you going on, on trips? Not everyone wants to, although you'll grow the market significantly. Yeah. How does that become, you know, a decacorn or like a, yeah, you know, yeah. a giant company? I
1: mean, one of the things that I, I loved about HipCamp, I mean, it's a, there's a lot of things and I'll, I'll explain, but just taking a step back just on the, re, on the last part of that question, like one of the things that I love is, finding marketplaces that other people underestimate from the yeah. outside. And we tend to be optimistic when other people are, are less so. Um, and I think that, you know, in particular in areas where it's so easy for competitors to come in uh, to find like something that other people easily overlook. And, and by the way, I made the mistake. I met Alyssa for the seed, and I passed. Um, and I passed for a couple reasons. I I wasn't quite convinced that she'd figured out how to how to grow supply. Yeah. Um, and it was super early. I mean, I think it was maybe a dozen or so hosts at the time. Uh, and the second thing is that I wasn't yet convinced that there was. The market was big enough to sustain and build a, a big company. And then as I kind of kept in touch with Alyssa and, and you know, we would talk product every once in a while, uh, I started to realize a few things, which is one, that she had figured out how to unlock supply. And there was this incredible dynamic that was happening with Hipcamp, which is that as she grew supply, demand followed. And that's, that's such a strong signal in a marketplace where like there's something, there's a supply base that hasn't been put online. Yeah. And as she did bring it online, it unlocked demand. Like there was demand there that was looking for that and just didn't have a place for it. And so that was like number one. Number two was that there was an incredible dynamic that when she did unlock these, these landowners, these hosts, you know, they would often start by just, you know, listing their land on hip camp. And so you'd have like the camper come, you know, the person who is definitely not me, maybe more Nabil, but definitely not me as a New Yorker who like, you know, Can put, has a tent and a sleeping bag and knows how to drink water from like a stream. Like that is definitely not me and cook, cook on a fire. Um, if there's not Uber Eats, I'm in trouble. Um, and so they like, you know, what would happen is that the landowner would start that way and they'd make a little bit of money and then they would take that money and then they would invest that money in their land. They would add a structure or a fire pit or whatever it was. And that would start to open up the addressable demand side. So there were people more like me who then would see, oh, there's a yurt, or there's a treehouse, or there's a bathroom. And so you, you start, and then they would kind of keep on doing that reinvesting, which would grow the, what the revenue was that that host would make yeah. and also the demand-side value proposition. So there was, like, something really interesting happening there. Um And then the third thing was just Alyssa. I mean, I just think yeah. she's a fantastic founder. The vision that she has for the company is, is, like, very clear. And she just understands that there's this real secular trend happening where people want to get outside and connect with nature. And so, like, you know, generally just kind of wrapping it, like – or less sensitive to the TAM calculus in the beginning. Cause just believe that with the right founders, they'll keep on unlocking new opportunity.
0: Yeah. My, my quick shout out to this is that she, when uh, I told her about village global, she said, Oh, global village, Marshall McLuhan. And she's the <laughs> only person who, uh, <laughs> who identified that. So I'm curious, you know, Airbnb at the time was sort of a, a new behavior. Um, or it was banking on behavior that they hoped would exist. And I've been, you know, in my request for startups, I I'm curious about a homeschool marketplace, I'm curious about a market, like I think uh, a marketplace for listeners uh, as an a alternative to therapists. You know, like fifteen dollars an hour, twenty dollars an hour customer service, or college students. How do you think about marketplaces around sort of new behaviors or new categories or or things that don't exist at at scale yet?
2: Well, Eric, you just you asked the question a little bit ago about what me and Sarah look for in marketplace yeah. businesses, and I, I would argue that if you had 10 or 20 VCs on here having a conversation. I think you probably would have heard eight of the 10 say TAM in the first couple of answers that they were going to give. And you didn't hear it from the two of us. It's a, it's an area where both of our firms actually have. Pretty strong conviction that is against most of the rest of the the venture market, yeah. where we are very happy to invest ahead of TAM and believe that a really amazing founder that has an insight to a really next generation product is yeah. can grow a market that you could have never had some associate right. uh, Excel spreadsheet their way into, yeah. and uh, and so you know on our side I think you know we're an investor in a company called Cameo, which is a marketplace between uh, consumers and celebrities, which yeah. is something that like. I don't know. Five or 10 years ago, if you had talked to me about that, I uh, would have, it'd be very, very hard to believe that that marketplace would work. But in a world where, you know, celebrities are getting closer and closer to the consumers and understand the authenticity of their voice is important to that relationship and that community. Um, it is a time where that product can create a market that, I, how, how large is that market? I have absolutely no idea, to be honest. But you just look at the relationship that that, Company is creating with uh, the, its consumers, and it's something unique and really right. special. So I would go back to yeah. what is the relationship that's being created, uh, what are the marketplace dynamics around that product, and try and take it in and of itself. This is not like as much as we're here to talk about, you know, some some playbook ways of looking at at this world. Like it's just building a startup is not a playbook. There's, right. There are little things you can take from one or the other, but there's just there's no direct roadmap. Yeah.
0: When I see Cammy, my first response was so dumb and then went successful, yet yeah, so brilliant, uh,
2: which is like <laughs> the
0: perfect, so dumb in the sense I, I wouldn't have seen it in advance. And I built something like that in the past that didn't work out, obviously. And um, so brilliant, of like, oh, of course, you know, uh, of course it works. So, how would you analyze, I guess, the two examples I, I just gave sort of homeschool is not a mainstream behavior, but maybe there's some latent demand for it because, um, you know, people are frustrated at alternatives and, you know, people do want therapists, they can't afford it, you know, and some people might enjoy listening for 15 to $20 how would you sort of, I
1: I love the homeschool example. So like, you know, back to the red hot center, like people, I I myself have, wasn't homeschooled, but I've talked to people who were, and like, and and we would see this all the time on Pinterest. Like education was a huge vertical on Pinterest. And like people were always posting the content that they were creating, the lesson plans, you know, and, and like a real thirst for information. And so it's, you know, if you think about education generally, it's, a, it's a pervasive need for everybody. Yeah. And it's felt most acutely like it's a red hot center for people who are trying to create a curriculum for their own children. Right. And so I love the idea actually that homeschooling is that red hot center. And then there's all these positive externalities of, of getting that really right, right. that can let you grow beyond that red hot center and start to like have the knock on effects of being a stronger and stronger value proposition for a broader and broader group of people.
0: And when you say red hot center, are you referring to sort of a passionate early adopter base, late in demand? Like what do you, yeah,
1: it's just like the, yeah, the place where it is felt, the pain is felt most acutely, the needs felt most acutely. Cause those are the people who will go through, The hoops that you'll have in an early stage marketplace when you don't yet have liquidity of like digging for the information that they need, like going through, you know, spending more time, like finding the right, you know, supplier in that case. Like they're just they're just and they're going to find you like they're the ones that are going to find you. So, you know, it's always uh, to what I mentioned earlier. It's always about finding like building liquidity and you're going to have the best chance of doing that with the group of people who have that need most acutely.
0: Right. Child care is maybe another example. Have you looked at child care marketplace?
1: Yeah, that one's tough. That's one's tougher. and Can um, you talk about
2: child yeah. care? Because it's a good example of you do have uh, an early entrant in the marketplace business in care.com, yeah. which sat on the lead gen side of this arc yeah. of marketplaces. And what we haven't really seen is childcare transition into a managed marketplace model. Uh, We haven't seen somebody usurp it the way that, say, DoorDash and Postmates are usurping Grubhub. And I think it's an interesting question to ask why that's not Mm -hmm. happening. My, my worry is that if you find a good child care provider, you want that person to be with you at all times. And so it's very, it's not a fungible good in the way that say a good driver is a good utility for you to get from point A to point B. It just doesn't feel like that kind of dynamic.
1: Yeah. yeah. Like I think that's exactly right. Like there's been these kind of twofold problems, which is that for the, you know, you're trying to find your, your nanny, the person yeah. who takes care of your kid. Yeah. That's a monogamous relationship. And so that's why it's kind of biased towards what what Nabil was articulating. Then there's been an, another generation of companies that have tried to build that more on-demand care. Yeah. And and the challenge has been just supply constraint. And so it's like it's very, very hard to find enough nannies who have enough quality and are trusted. And there was actually one of these companies was called Trusted Maybe. Was or was? Like, I don't know if it's still around today, um, but it's just been really hard. And and because you know marketplaces don't function without trust, and and it's you. in if you can imagine, like what's the highest trust needing transaction? It's someone taking over your ki- like taking care of your kid, and so it's just been really really hard for them to figure out how to scale supply. It's the same thing with um with daycare. So there's been yeah. a bunch of um companies I've come into this space and it's absolutely a huge there's like a huge imbalance between supply and demand because you've got this new generation of parents that are, you know, new like newly dual income. Yeah. Uh no no plan to like not be that way. And and we haven't had the daycares, the childcare to to meet that demand. But it's still such a hard problem to Get people to open daycares that weren't already doing it.
0: Yeah. So I want mean, to ask two variations of the same question. When you see a marketplace at <laughs> seed, like you saw, you know, hip camp at seed, you see lots of other companies at seed that you're like, Hey, this is, this is interesting. I'm going to watch this, watch it for the A. What sort of signals from a metrics perspective or, or business perspective are, or market perspective are you looking for to see? Oh, they've, they've hit this. Now they're ready. Variation of that is I'm curious if there are examples where we talk about where you saw it and you just didn't see it. You know hitting scale for whatever reason, like I don't know if you and these companies won't be offended because they're big right now. But if you looked at Thumbtack back in the day, if you looked at Apartment List, I know there's a bunch of you know marketplace businesses that had a tough time raising, raising A, but you know, are doing quite well right now.
1: Oh, now you're, you're digging everything up for me, Eric, right now. So I, I looked at the seed or the A for Thumbtack,
0: yeah, 50 VCs passed on Thumbtack at the end, yeah, once, yeah.
1: So, <laughs> so Marco is fantastic. I actually, I joke that I named my, I joked to him that I named my son after him, but, um, uh, but he, you know, he's just, he's just a fantastic entrepreneur. I, I think he's in a great person. The, the concern I had in the beginning was when I, when I met him was that he was clearly doing something right. He was growing, um, You know, I I kind of articulated before is like the wrong race. I I worried that he wasn't building liquidity; that he was going super, super broad Mm -hmm. and not getting the density that I really hunger for when I look at a company. And you know, the thing that I think I missed was that he, you know, he had to do it that way because those transactions weren't repeat enough repeat in nature. Yeah, you need he needed to create frequency, and so the way to create it was to own a bunch of categories. But those are, you know, sometimes you get actually you get it wrong a lot. <laughs> yeah,
2: totally. I mean, at Spark, we definitely believe, as I said before, there is no playbook for yeah. how startups are to be built. We, we try to focus a lot on, frankly, listening to the founder yeah. and listening to the problems that they have identified in their business. And so if you're asking, what do I see in a seed, that then I give as guidance to the A, that comes out of a very specific conversation right. with the founder about their business and where they see the hiccups. Because the truth is that we're 10,000 feet away. We may yeah. see patterns across dozens of startups that we've worked with, but we're not inside building these companies every single day. And so yeah. if there's somebody who's going to be able to evaluate where the weakness is in the business, I, I just, at Spark we just truly believe that the founders actually – uh, the right person to do that. The red flag would actually be a founder conversation at the seed where they're not uncovering the grisly, horrible things about their business. Cause we all know that an early stage company, frankly, seed series A, series B, they are All not in great shape on the inside. Like you're you're still building the machine to make it work. And so if we can have a really clear and honest conversation about the areas of that marketplace business where things are not really working right now and that they're trying to work on, that insight from the founder might, on the one hand, help you gain uh, comfort and confidence that it's the time to get involved right now. They know what the problems are. They're tackling those problems. Or it sets up the conversation for, look, they're... There's an area here that I think really needs to get solved that we just agreed on and let's stay in touch and let's talk through it. And let me try and ideally connect you to one or two people who may have gone through something similar and help you work through that problem solving, which then very much leads into, into yeah. the next round.
1: I mean, just to add to that. And I absolutely agree. Like I, I think, you know, it's uh, marketplaces. There isn't one flavor of marketplace. I mean, we talk about, uh, we talk about, just open door. I mean, uh, sorry, open table as a marketplace, but it's not like a consumer is making a transaction. Like there's, there's just so many different flavors. I would say Tinder is a marketplace like, and, and so again, there's so many different flavors that it's hard to be prescriptive about what to look for. At the end of the day, I do think it's a, a founder. And, and that's, that's always what I'm looking for is the founder that approaches building a marketplace with the systems level thinking and the cleverness that you need yeah. in order to solve two problems at the same time with each other. Right. Like it's, it's, you know, most companies they have to capture lightning in a bottle once yeah. um, marketplaces have to do it twice yeah. and then use, you know, both sides of that market to, or three s- times. Yeah. Or three, to- yeah <laughs> or three times. I mean, Instacart, like I was reflecting on it the other day, like, I mean, gosh, what a tough business to yeah. build. Like and, and so it's it's you know when you're when because they've got three constituents they've got the 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 grocery the the picker, and then the consumer, and then of course now they're adding on the fourth, which is yeah. the the kind of CPG goodies that you get in your in your delivery and so those businesses are are really, really tough to build, and it takes a special type of founder to build yeah. them.
0: So it's, it's 2019, uh, it's almost 2020. Wow. Where are we excited right now in terms of, uh, what subsectors in marketplaces? Are you looking at a lot of managed marketplaces? I remember Bill Gurley had that tweet, which was like, what what's is, one? yeah, what's, is that just market entrant? <laughs> where, where are we, lo- what's our sort of request for startups and marketplaces? Or if you were an entrepreneur, you know, where would, you know, I run this community called On Deck, which is people looking to do their next thing. They're, they're <laughs> thinking about ideas, spaces. Or conversely, and or conversely, where are the bodies buried in the industry? Like, where are you not looking to invest in marketplaces? Um, what's your, what's your take?
1: I mean, one area that I, I know I I just continue to dig, dig around for and I'm excited by is companies that are unbundling LinkedIn in some way and, and, and approaching it in a different, are there a different kind of dimension or a different vertical within it? It just, you think about like LinkedIn was solved for the problem that I have. I mean, it was created for the problem I have, which is, you know, as a VC or a recruiter, like the tech people. And there's, there's, it's like perfect for me. But when you start to think about other verticals, it just, the, the value proposition becomes less and less strong. and, and, you know, I, I, I just think that, man, that creates a huge opportunity. And so if it's, you know, real estate, if it's actually going after engineers more specifically, if it's, you know, kind of these other vertical labor pools, like it just feels like there's, yeah, rig up is a great example. Like there, there's, there's so much opportunity, um, to create that type of network and that type of marketplace. So that's an area that I continue to be excited to speak to entrepreneurs about.
0: Yeah. Have you looked at a lot of labor marketplaces, or what's 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 your take on what's going to work? You know, in a labor marketplace versus this is too niche, or you know, might not. be? I,
2: I think there's a reason we're seeing a trend towards labor marketplaces and service marketplaces, and I think it is this arc of getting into. Closer and closer to the, the, the transactions yeah. and closer and closer to the meat of what's happening. At the end of the day, it is about a human going and doing a thing. Mm-hmm. And instead of saying connecting companies, uh, to like a restaurant to that end consumer, it eventually gets down to the actual labor itself. So I think it's an interesting category. Uh, we've invested in a company actually with Benchmark, mm-hmm. uh, called InstaWork, uh, which is, uh, looking at the labor marketplace in the hospitality industry. That we feel very positive about. But I'd say broader, uh, we always struggle with the, like, where are the exciting places thing, because there are, there are a lot of VCs. Most VCs prognosticate quite a bit, uh, and are very really th- thesis driven. And, um, and some of them, you can read those theses on their website and so on. And I- I'm not saying that's the wrong or right thing. For those firms, it seems to be the right thing. For Spark. Part of the ethos that has led us to lead to a lot of new market creation companies is that we actually try to keep a beginner's mind about these kinds of things. So uh, I try and keep an open mind. We've invested in a bunch of marketplace businesses and have certainly written our share of blog posts about them. But at the end of the day, uh, the founders know. I don't know. And so it's partly my job to be open to some founder walking in the door tomorrow and presenting some marketplace that I just have never even thought about before and and then feeling that excitement with that person and digging in.
0: Totally. I respect the beginner's mind.
2: Uh, Sarah, are there any bodies burning, like
0: any market, marketplace type things that you just, I can't, you know. You can't get, do it. Yeah. <laughs> or just, I've seen too many. It's too hard.
1: Man, I think that the biggest area where I just, I just like, I just can't get comfortable with the dynamics of the business are ones that are lending related. Yeah. You know, it's one of those things where. I said Sarah,
0: lending business like three days ago. <laughs> 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 it's almost... us. <laughs>
1: You know, the, the thing with lending is that there will never be a shortage of demand for credit products. And so if you are, if you're able to give credit to people who have not yet been able to get that credit from someone else, you're going to be able to grow. It's, it's, it's a little bit like, kind of that, you know, adage, and it's not exactly right, but you can always grow by selling a dollar for 80 cents. There's, there's a dynamic of lending that always makes me a little uncomfortable about that. But the biggest thing is that, you know, we talk about a credit cycle. And it's something that we always have to be aware of. And the thing that I just realized with lending, or I kind of feel with lending is that it's a type of business that, Can feel really, really, really great. Like it's really working until all of a sudden it doesn't. And there's so many examples of companies that you look at in the public markets that are lending businesses. And it's like, it's great. It's great. It's great. It's great. And then it can, you know, on a nose become not. And that like reversion to the mean, which in lending tends to be just a function of how much like the book of business that you're lending out makes me uncomfortable because no matter how many attempts there have been at creating those types of businesses, there, there's just a gravitational pull to the multiples that you can get that you can't time. Right. And so that, that feels just tricky to me. Yeah. The other area, by the way, is just healthcare has been so yeah.
2: hard. The problem that we've had looking at healthcare for quite some time is that it feels like First of all, it's a highly regulated industry. We haven't talked about regulated marketplaces yeah. yet, yeah. but that's an area where I think we have to be very careful. On the one hand, it's an area of wonderful opportunity. There's a reason why there haven't been marketplaces there to date, and so do you find a sliver or a way in? Um, I think it's great for founders to look there, but I think you have to have an angle on on the why now for the regulation. I don't think it's enough to just yeah. – Enter the market and assume it's all going to go well with a better product. And I also don't think it's uh, in 2019, 2020 the right or smart thing to go into a regulated market and assume, much like Airbnb, that you can just ignore the regulation and and just hope you grow. I, I don't think that playbook works at all, and I don't think it's really respectful to those markets. And so that makes regulated industries hard. Although again, not not impossible. And there's always going to be the exception that proves the rule, and that's the nature of startups. Right. Yeah.
1: yeah. No. I think that's exactly right. Like there's. <clears throat> the bar gets a lot higher in an industry where like lives are at stake yeah. in that way. And so it's it's sort of like there was a, a cast of startups that went after um, kind of they they would describe as like Airbnb for like your home cooked meal,
2: yeah.
1: um, like the idea. And it makes so much sense. It's like there's all these people who are already cooking at home. We did one of and, these. <laughs> yeah, we did one of these. We and, and yeah, so, we
2: invested in a company called Kitchen Surfing.
1: Kitchen surfing. Okay. So, oh yeah, I remember that company. And so it's like the value proposition makes sense, the like supply-demand side makes sense. Like whenever they get started, they grow really nicely because it's it it just makes so much sense. And yet the regulators, like the the risk, the 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 counterpunch of the regulators is very strong. And so you have to be so careful with those types so, of The areas. thing you want
2: in healthcare, the reason you really want it to work as an investor is that it's clearly a situation where the current market solutions are not solving the problem. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a situation where you want to try new and innovative reasons to solve. Uh, the, the the marketplaces we've come across that seem good, unfortunately, that seem to actually solve a problem with a really great product, tend to feel like boutique high-end medicine that just makes healthcare better for rich people, which is maybe a good business, but just it's it's hard for us to get excited about at the end of the day when it's not really solving the deep underlying problem for the average American.
1: Yeah. You know, and and man, like if there is ever an, a space that needs disruption, is gigantic, like should create a lot of opportunity, is changing its healthcare, And so I feel like it's one of those areas that we'll continue to bang our head against. And I hope many founders do. But it's just been really hard so far.
0: Do you have a sense, and maybe this is the wrong way to think about it, of what like the iPhone moment in healthcare could be, or what was sort of the moment where all these sorts of, you know, great companies? Well, was
1: there doing was, that? there was a hope and a belief that the Affordable Care Act was going to be that moment. Um, and I think that's, you know, there was a, a wave of startups that, that emerged, uh, and there have been, there have been some successes. I would say Oscar in New York yeah. is probably one of the companies that has the best chance of, of succeeding, um, at least that I know of. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to know what the – like it's just – it's hard to know. It yeah. just feels like the actual – the incentives in that market are so, yeah. so tough.
2: One of the big problems in healthcare is that pricing is so much controlled by the government. Yeah. Like this is not – you know it's funny that the government right now is is getting muscular about tech and is talking about introducing regulation. And the issue with regulation is generally regulation favors incumbents. It doesn't favor startups. And so you try to insert regulation to make things "quote unquote" more fair. But in doing that, what you do is you make a market entirely static. And so you kind of remove the uh, ability for innovation and disruption to actually fix the problems for consumers, and you kind of become more and more dependent on regulation to fix all those problems. And I think that's where we are in healthcare. You know, when you have Medicare pricing being set by the government, and therefore like that flows into the entire rest of the business, and so many of the people that are coming in that are are your customers are on Medicaid and Medicare, Uh, I I think it it makes it very, very hard to try anything that's truly, truly disruptive.
0: Yeah. So we've seen some trends where traditional brick-and-mortar retailers are going online in an effort to compete with companies like Amazon, while Amazon and other online-first businesses have made significant investments in going offline, like Amazon acquiring Whole Foods. Talk a little bit about that and how you see that trend developing over the next few years.
1: Sure. I mean, I like. I think a lot of what you're you're pointing to is that companies just have to go where the consumers are. Um I think there's actually sorry, two things. Which so is companies have to go where the consumers are, and so I think, you know, if you're Nordstrom and you've got your brick and mortar retail, like locations everywhere. People are going to be surfing the web. And so you need to have a solution for them when they're staying there at their computers and, and create a great experience. I think what Amazon going from online to offline in the Whole Foods example, I think is, is really about the brand that Amazon has and, and having to expand that and like being able to have, to be able to expand it with the step function change that Amazon can do at their scale, which is acquiring, acquiring Whole Foods. Um, because like you know when you think about Amazon and what you buy on Amazon you don't think about getting organic pears or bananas or milk and and you do think about whole foods that way and so Amazon could expose pears and milk and everything in their UI but if consumers aren't thinking about it when they go to Amazon they're not going to purchase and so and so i think Whole Foods was about that. But I think that you can have companies, like we're investors in a company called Good Eggs. Yeah. Um, and Good Eggs shows that there are plenty of people, myself included, who love to buy groceries and really great produce online without ever having to go to a store. And so I think that, you know, if you where's momentum? Momentum is definitely on the side of the Good Eggs where it's not, you don't need the physical location. You don't need someone to be able to go there and it's and it will become I believe more and more niche uh, but it's gonna I mean there's just so much spend there it's going to take a long long time
2: totally I think it's just a question of where you're getting your customers from and we are unfortunately in an area where there aren't really any good new customer acquisition channels like you know the broader landscape in the late 90s, you had people trying to innovate on email marketing and direct marketing in order to get people. Then uh, you had folks on the Facebook feed when Facebook came out trying to figure out new ways to acquire customers that way. Mobile was the next channel after that. Uh, and today, well, I think we're now five, six, seven years into no real new channels of customer acquisition and so i think this is a little bit of a situation of like all of the low hanging fruit being gone and so you got to go everywhere you can to try and find your customers and if they're offline that's great if uh, i mean the, arguably the only new customer acquisition channel Um, is probably like online influencers, uh, has been the one area where there's been some innovation in over the last couple of years. And actually, I don't think of a lot of marketplace businesses other than Cameo, which we mentioned earlier, but there really aren't that many, uh, and some commerce businesses like Glossier, which we're an investor in. Uh, yep, exactly. But they're actually in the marketplace side, they haven't really tapped into that, um, into that audience yet. And so I think it's just a question of where you're going to get your next customer from.
0: Do do you guys have strong opinions on whether markets have to be, marketplaces have to be winner take all or not? You know, we've uh, we've seen a ride sharing, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. Although it's still TBD. And you know, you're investing in Postmates. Obviously, there's a few players there. Is that something that you have strong opinions about, or or is important to you? Or
1: I mean, I think like the the best marketplaces unquestionably have winner take most dynamics to them. The like what I think about though is that. There's, you know, when we say, when we describe a marketplace, there's so many use cases that can be solved by the same marketplace that what happens is that you tend to have on the fringes of a marketplace dynamics that aren't winner take most. Um, and then, but in the red hot center of the marketplace, it's really, like, you've really got to be able to own it um, to be able to build something that's really valuable. I do think there's a lot of, and you know, there's definitely oligopolies that naturally form in most of these areas, but but the profitability that's just, you know, the network effects of profitability of these businesses are are best when they are, you know, when take most dynamic.
2: I'll push back lightly. I, I think what we've learned is that the Peter Thiel style, there's a natural monopoly and marketplaces create a winner-take-all is untrue. I think that's actually something the industry has tried to fight. Uh, and say, is it, is true because they have a playbook that says how things are supposed to be run over the last 20 years. But e- eBay is not a lone marketplace. Amazon marketplaces, it's a majority of Amazon's business. Uh, you can just go down the list, actually. You can't, I don't think you can find a marketplace at scale that doesn't have at least an oligopoly type structure where there's two to three major competitors in the market that create alternatives. Partly because most of those markets are so massive that there's just no way there's just going to be one player. And yet they're healthy.
1: Well, and that's my point about how these marketplaces tend to be like have parts of them where it's like the red hot center where they just nail that and like that's really where the prop- a lot of the profitability comes from, like the best dynamics of that business. And then there's like the fringes, there's like the longer tail and you see this even with local businesses. So there's a lot of local businesses <clears throat> where all the profitability comes from one city, right. you know, like there is uh i think i heard like deliveroo in 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 the in europe is london yeah. and so you have like you have some you just all the value ends up being from from the place where you have the most penetration there is actually i think it was naspers or Shipstead that had this graph that they posted where they talk about where they show empirically that the further ahead the number one is from the number two, and this was for classified sites, the more profitable the the model. And so ideally, you want to win. It doesn't mean it's the only way to create equity value. There's certainly a lot of equity value being created. But man, like the the businesses that are like, are, are just so far ahead of the number two, those are the ones where you end up having the, the best profit
2: I think it's margin. all about time horizon. I think when you're investing in a Series A or Series B, the last thing you want is five well-funded competitors that all have very similar products. It's very unlikely that that company is going to generate enough leverage in the business to really scale and grow. I guess what I'm pushing back on is at the end of the day, there's – Hilton and Hyatt. There's McDonald's and Burger King. Like You're not going to get a massive market where you don't get entrance. And so I think the real question is just how far are you ahead of competitors? How much leverage do you have with your customers in your market? And can you get to scale? Can you get to the point where you build for the first three, four, or five years so you can get to scale and have barriers to entry? If you want to look at this in the case of the food services business and you look at food delivery, Deliveroo has London. Um, it's no secret that the the bulwark for Postmates is the Los Angeles area where they're wildly profitable. They have massive market share and they have actually a brand value that would be really hard to assert. Uh,
1: but come so and I'm, Grubhub I'm, in New York, yeah, yeah But slowly, like right? I'll push back again. Like it's not about getting to scale; it's about getting to liquidity. And so like it is about where are you going to have liquidity, yeah. and then the network effects that really support that. And then there's like trying to, and then it's the dogfight of and the arm to arm battle, mm-hmm. I never go to expressions, but I think that's the right one, <laughs> of, um, of expanding from that, from that place of strength. Yeah,
2: I think yeah, we agree yeah. there. I think yeah, we agree. Yeah. It is about finding liquidity in yes. the market. I think one of the things in food delivery that people underestimated, me as well, by the way, as a board member early on, we were talking about at the Series B and early Series C at Postmates. Which of the markets were about to hit liquidity and we're about to see things like the number of deliveries per driver per month uh, – for per hour, the number of deliveries per driver per hour start to go down and when are you going to get to the point that you're able to batch deliveries? So somebody happens to be going into that Mexican restaurant and another order comes in for that Mexican restaurant. So you walk out with two burritos for two different places that happen to be located nearby each other and it turned out that we were off by a couple of years And in fact, what Grubhub is seeing right now is they're trying to expand, and it seems like they're determined to try and take the entire industry down with them as they go down, is that I think their recent statement from a CEO letter was that, that you don't get any liquidity in the market, period, and that's just not right. Um, Because I think where you have these bulwarks, where you have these really, really high concentration levels, you are seeing um, batch deliveries. You are seeing the kind of leverage that you get from having a really strong network effect. I think what we maybe all underestimated was at what scale you start to see those network effects. Um, But once you see those network effects in those markets, I think right now what maybe isn't as obvious from the outside looking in is that I think the Uber Eats, DoorDash, and Postmates customer bases actually are quite different. And they have different market dynamics. They're in different geographies and they have very, very different characteristics.
1: One thing that you, you allude to there that I'll just double click on is, is the value of specialization. And so, like, you know, when I think about like eBay, you know, I, I meant, talked about LinkedIn being vulnerable. Uh, eBay seems vulnerable too. Um, on many different dimensions and, and I, and you, know, and you can't help. Like, uh, look at Goat and StockX, right? Like here it was an area where eBay did have a vulnerability in the category. They had, they had all the suppliers, all the demand that you could possibly want to, to create the dynamics for liquidity. But then there was the, the risk of counterfeits and, and kind of a breakdown of trust. And what, what Goat was able to do so well in particular in order to create this vertical was, you know, the the trust and the the effort they put around making sure that anything sold on their marketplace wasn't counterfeit you talk about uh delivery you know there was a company in Canada uh called skip the dishes and skip the dishes like you know just incredible founders uh was acquired by Just Eat and the thing that they did was they said hey everybody all this all these com- you know well-funded competitors are going after these big cities and we're going to go after the really sparsely populated, spread out second, third tier cities. And we're going to create a solution that is specialized for the needs of the 30 minute drive from one place to the next or the out, like the 45 minute drive, like the places that just don't have the same density dynamics. And let's, let's build our marketplace. I'm really worried about
2: that though. Like, like I'm curious, I didn't, I don't know that company that well, but I worry that a company like that is walking into a market that is going to take actually may seem like low hanging fruit and a different use case, but really, really hard to build liquidity. Like if you're talking about 30 minute drives and you're at what scale do you finally get to the point where you get any kind of real liquidity in the business and real leverage in the business?
1: I, so I haven't spoken to them for a few few years now, but they did a great job. And like, they did a great job for two reasons. One is that they were like no one was focusing on like everybody was spending all their effort, all their time
2: yeah, on
1: winning. The, yeah, they had yeah. huge like it, it was it's just, you know, it's the best when you get to focus on a market that no one else is trying to win. And so they were going after the markets that no one else was trying to win yeah. and one by one knocking it down. And the second thing that they did, which was really smart, is that they actually owned the website of the restaurant. And so they created this loop where you could go to whatever, you know, that local website restaurant is and go directly to their, webs- their their page and buy there. And it was fulfilled by Skip the Dishes. And so you didn't have to have the mobile phone. You didn't have to, like, really know Skip. You could just go to the restaurant you know. And so they really locked in. The supply in a way that you could say OpenTable did too. And so, you know, look, it was acquired for, I don't know, 100 and something million. Like, it, you know, it was probably acquired before the founders wished that they had sold, but it's, uh, but I, I heard they're doing quite well.
2: Yeah. And that is a good way to manage. Uh, reduced frequency. You're talking about being in a third-tier city. You don't have as much density. The issue is you're going to have a frequency problem, yeah. and you can solve that ideally yeah. by locking up supply, and, which it
1: sounds like. Right, right. Cool and creating story. a playbook that's specific to the problem that you're solving. Very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Do you have any frameworks for what real liquidity looks like, where people know they have it, think they yeah. have it, but don't?
1: No, I think about – it's actually such an interesting question. I think about a couple of things. I think like the classic – definition of liquidity talks about like you've got intentful users coming in and how well do you fulfill that that intent and you can kind of think about conversion rate as as one proxy to that um but i think that there's so many ways in which people prop up that conversion rate in the beginning for good reason like that's how you do it for a marketplace you know Uber in the early days sent iPhones to drivers and guaranteed hourly rates. Uh, Glassdoor, uh, actually, you know, called people up and offered to put them into like, uh, lotteries for winning iPhones. You know, they did whatever it took in the beginning to get that flywheel spinning. And so there's, there's, there's just getting a sense for how well is the the supply value proposition match with the demand value proposition, which is classic liquidity definition. But then the other thing that I think about is just like, how would it do without whatever prop, like whatever crutch it's using? And I think that like, we just get so dependent on the crutches for a lot of the marketplaces. And so it's always about being aware of that. One One crutch people use a lot is actually not taking a rake. And so you don't really know yet how well how much value you're creating until you start Gosh. to take to try to take a rake so um so i'm always you know it's kind of it's not just do you have liquidity but it's what's the quality of that liquidity how, right. how organic is it
0: and how should we talk about scale we talk about liquidity how should we think about profitability a lot of these you know marketplace you mentioned food delivery but other spaces too you know uh, the players raised a lot of money they have a lot, a lot of users there's other competitors like we were talking about what happens to them how, how should they think about profitability what, what could enable that
2: I think rumors of the lack of profitability of most of these scale marketplaces or marketplaces are actually greatly exaggerated, and I think you'll see it now. Lyft beat their expectations. They said they're going to be uh, profitable faster than they originally projected. I think you'll see similar things from other players now that it looks like the market has decided, the public markets have decided, that they don't want to pay for growth. Uh, I, I think the downside of that is, look, there's ways to grow badly, and we can talk about when companies have overspent uh, when they don't understand the unit economics of their business, uh, there's certainly some bad behavior, but I think by and large, actually, unlike the late 90s, most of these companies, uh, despite the, uh, sniping on Twitter, um, actually have a decent handle of their bottom line with like maybe one or two exceptions and, uh, will get profitable pretty, pretty quickly. I think, The unfortunate thing about the public markets not valuing growth and people spending into their growth in these massive, massive markets is it just means that for the companies that really do want to keep growing because they still see – great leverage in their business and they want to keep taking market share, it means they're just going to stay private longer. And unfortunately, we're like in a decade-long cycle where already private equity and later and later stage funding is keeping these companies private longer and longer, which is keeping the public from being able to participate in the growth of those companies. And so unfortunately, the cycle, I think, will just mean that companies will, who still want to grow and feel like the public markets aren't going to allow them to grow publicly are just going to stay private.
1: Yeah, it's like you have this – this challenge that all these businesses face, which is that the market has been rewarding growth with capital in the private markets, and you've got so much capital in the private markets. And and it kind of creates these, these two challenges, which is, number one, you just have a lot of competition. So you have people who are just continuing to spend money to grow as quickly as they can and do so uh, at the cost of their own unit economics, the marginal cost to acquire that next that next user. Um But the second thing and I and I, and I think about this a lot is just, I, I believe that there's, you know, this wheel that when you're operating a business, you can turn the wheel towards growth. Or you can turn the wheel towards profitability. And it's like an incredible act of will to turn that wheel towards profitability. It means saying no to things. And I've heard stories of late stage growth investors pitching a founder on taking a very big check and and telling them explicitly pretend we don't care about unit economics. If you if we say don't worry about that, how quickly can you grow and what would you do with it? And and that orientation is saying jerk that wheel as far towards growth as you possibly can. And, and what ends up happening is that if you operate under those circumstances, there are a lot of decisions that you're making at the margin that start to accumulate. And then as you try to turn that wheel back towards profitability, it becomes harder and harder. You've just created a momentum that, you know, a culture, a process, a product. I mean, there's just so many little, little things that add up that make it really, really tough to do. And so it's, it's not to say, can't happen or it won't happen. Like to Nabil's point, there's a lot of businesses that, that, you know, are very disciplined about their unit economics and have been thinking about profitability and are growing in the right ways. But there's, there's a lot of others that have just, that have this momentum and they're the Titanic at this point. And that's just a much, that's a much longer turn to make.
2: Yeah. I, I look, I'll say the quiet thing out loud here, which is that SoftBank's a bad actor in the space and has, encourage people to be more reckless as they grow. I don't actually think that's endemic of the entire venture capital industry. I think it's really a small number of players, like less than a handful of players. What gets lost in all of the noise is that I think every single marketplace business we've been involved with, and probably for Benchmark 2, and probably if we go down the list, other venture firms too, we're really close to dying. At certain points. At certain points, there was one round where the market wasn't trending their way, something hadn't turned out, and they had a really hard time fundraising. And actually, I think, one, you have to understand that as an investor and as a CEO and just stay a steady hand during those times of periods and, and just make sure you're still go back to the fundamentals and believe you're building a really good business at the end of the day Two, that shock to the system of a hard fundraise. Um, as long as it doesn't kill the business can often be incredibly, incredibly good for the business because it's, it's when you get really good at saying no, it's when you really understand it's what when is you, it we can do and not.
1: Someone do. else has jerked the wheel towards profitability and <laughs> the market right. has jerked that wheel and you really pay attention to it then. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, I read somewhere that someone said as software, Eaten more of the world and start getting into the physical world. We've settled for worse margins, and we sort of have this question of what's a tech company, what's not a tech company. So I'll ask Nabil, what's your what's your hot take on WeWork?
2: I I don't have any great insight into WeWork. We didn't look at it as a deal for a variety of reasons, to be honest, and. If you want to know, the smart person that I know on WeWork is actually a CEO I work with, uh, Francis is the CEO of Sonder, who's also in the real estate business. And, and actually for a couple of years now, long before this fall, this fall that WeWork has taken, has been talking about how much and publicly talking about, um, how he doesn't believe it's a very good business. Uh, I would go suggest that you read up, uh, on his thoughts on it and skip mine.
0: Let's, uh, let's close by, uh, speaking to the founders building, building marketplaces. Any, um, obvious mistakes? Uh, or maybe not non obvious mistakes that you see founders make that you should you know they should be thoughtful of. Uh,
1: the biggest one is just what I what I um, mentioned before, which is it's so easy to get lost in wanting that graph to go up and to the right and and just like kind of going fast, fast, fast. Let's scale. Let's scale. Let's scale. The market has so rewarded that, and it is just so easy to fall into that. That trap of, of thinking that way. If you, if you go down that path, you're more vulnerable because you're, you're not focusing on the right thing, which is building liquidity and creating more value for your incremental next participant in your marketplace. And so it is about getting that red hot center right. When you do that, there's so many playbooks on how to grow from there. But the hardest thing, the real magic is about getting that That small thing really right and growing from there. Yeah.
2: I think if I were to give CEOs one piece of advice, is that as early as possible in their business, especially in a marketplace business, um, start reporting everything in net revenue. Start talking about it in board meetings that way. Start reporting KPIs that way. I see way too many CEOs who report GMV and deal with it at a board level and talk to their executives about GMV growth and then say, we'll move take rate up over time. And that's how we'll get our net revenue. And uh, I- I've seen some very interesting changes in behavior amongst not just the CEO who might internalize the entire business, but Amongst their executive team, which all of them might have variable view into the whole business, if you just start dealing with net revenue, how much actual cash is coming into the door in this business um, doesn't mean you have to be profitable day one, we, uh, doesn't mean you have to not focus on GMV. You can focus on GMV growth. Um, but if... Net revenue is your start. You at least know how much capital is coming in the door.
1: I, I can't underscore that more. Like I think that's just such a right point. And you know what you measure matters. Like everybody thinks about, oh, if I if I measure it, it'll improve, and that's true. But man, if you're measuring the wrong thing, you're going to miss the real health of your business. To to Nabil's point and how that's changing over time. And so it's it's so so important. The the other thing that I I always push on because I I I love. Talking about data and how to me- how to measure the health of your business It's just looking at cohorts on both sides um, of, of your marketplace to really understand how those dynamics are evolving over time.
0: My guests today have been Sarah Tavel and Nabil Hyatt. Uh, Nabil, Sarah, thank you so much for putting on a clinic on all things marketplaces.
1: Thank you so
2: much. Fun Thanks for having, having, us. having
0: us. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.